So, dear brothers and sisters, I'm so happy to be back here worshiping with you all. It's always a privilege to me to be able to, to be right here and, and, and share with you what I have humbly received from God. Got it, okay. So, for any well-written story, there's always one or two overarching themes that run through the entire plot. This overarching theme of themes basically just carry the story from beginning to the end. And all subplots within the narrative would contribute to reinforce the themes. And for a plot as well written as the Bible, there are certainly a few overarching themes you can observe. For example, the most obvious one probably is God's love and his faithfulness to his creation, and particularly to his chosen people. However, I also like to introduce to you another theme the Bible that, in the Bible that runs through the entire plot, from Genesis to Revelation. It is the theme that God is actively confronting evil. The Bible has never shied away the fact that we live in an overlap, overlapping realm. The physical world that we are in overlaps with the spiritual realm. Things are not just how we see it. Paul describes that we live our lives, we are constantly being tempted to do this. Ah, can you click one forward for me? Not responding. Yes, okay. We're always tempted to follow the ways of this world and of the ruler of the kingdom of the air. I mean, the problem with this ruler of the kingdom of the air is that it is not detectable by our five senses. There's no ugly look. There's no stinky smell. There's no bitter taste or, or, or scary voices. It's an invisible enemy that we physical beings are totally outmatched. This enemy, which we can call it evil, has long existed as early as the second verse in the Bible. This verse in Genesis, chapter 1, verse 2, said that the earth was in a chaotic and empty condition with darkness and abyss that formed the core of the world, of the, of the earth. These are all descriptions of evilness. Then the snake in the garden, the sins before the flood, the chaos in Babel Tower, the slavery in Egypt, the golden calf in the wilderness, the adultery of David, and in the New Testament even, Jesus told Peter, Get behind me, Satan. And even during the Last Supper, Jesus told his disciples that Satan has asked to sift all of you as wheat. That's why Paul urges us to put on the full armor of God so that you can take your stand against the, the devil's schemes. And Peter, in his first letter, said that your enemy, the devil, prowls around like a roaring lion. And also in James, in his letter, called us to resist the devil. And finally, in Revelation, that God will put an end to evilness once and for all. 
So I hope now you can see that God has a mandate in the Bible to deal with evilness. But when the Bible repeatedly talks about the same theme, we can see that it's because we can easily forget that we are surrounded by this invisible enemy. We need to see this world through not just our five senses, but through faith and through revelation. And today's passage, Psalm 121, is similar to our reality. It's very easy for us to fail to detect the spiritual threats that surround us. Just like it's very easy to fail to detect the evilness described in this psalm due to our detachment from its linguistical and cultural context. So, now let's read it. Let's read this psalm very carefully and see what God has to say to us. And I think today Wesley is going to read to us Psalm 121. So let's pay attention. Thank you, Wesley. Can you move forward one slide again? It's not really working. Psalm 121. I lift up my eyes to the mountains. Where does my help come from? My help comes from the Lord, the maker of heaven and earth. He will not let your foot slip. He who watches you over you will not slumber. Indeed, he who watches over Israel will neither slumber nor sleep. The Lord watches over you. The Lord is your shade at your right hand. The sun will not harm you by day, nor the moon by night. The Lord will keep you from all harm. He will watch over your life. <clears throat> the Lord will watch over your coming and going, both now and forevermore. Thank you. Yeah, let's pray together. Heavenly Father, we give thanks to you for this beautiful song. We ask that you give us wisdom, give us the sensitivity and the humbleness and the desire to know what you have to say to us and how you want us to live our lives based on what you said in this song. So we just pray to your spirit that you would guide us through. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. And you might wonder why, I mean, what does Psalm 121 have anything to do with evilness? I mean, even though we might have read it many times, this, is, this might be one of the favorite psalms that, that, that you, know, you, you might have read. It seems that this, the message in this psalm is not even close to battling evil. Honestly, many times we read it, we think that it's about blessing particularly about safety and protection. Its heading says it's a song of ascent. And in the last line, it says that God, watching, God is watching over you, over your coming and going. So it's about travel safe. It's a popular passage to recite during last few months of snowy and icy road conditions. In a night... In September 1991, Pastor Jerry Sitter was driving home with his family. But then a car in the opposite lane drifted past the center lane and, and, and collided head-on with them. Pastor Jerry survived this fatal accident, but 
his wife, his four-year-old daughter, and Jerry's mother, all did not make it and die. This traumatic experience later prompted Pastor Jerry to reflect on this experience, and, and he wrote a book titled, When God Doesn't Answer Your Prayer. In a testimony shared by him later on in his life, Pastor Jerry recalled his nightmare in, 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 his, in his life, and he specifically mentioned Psalm 121. He said that this is one of his favorite psalms, and he regularly prayed for his family according to the promises God gave in this psalm. The Lord will watch over your coming and going both now and forevermore. Now that three of his dearest persons in his life, his daughter, his wife, and his mother, all died at the same time in a traffic accident. So he couldn't help but ask himself this question. Was God not honoring his promise? Or did he, Jerry, misunderstand the promise? We have this kind of struggles too, don't we? We like passages such as Psalm 121, passages that are soothing to our ears, passages that seemingly emphasize on earthly blessings for us. We like these kind of promises because it emphasizes our benefits. But if Psalm 121 really promises about safety and, and, and physical protection, then maybe buying extra insurance or even wearing seatbelts would be a serious lack of faith in God, right? But reality has shown us that love God and prayers do not excuse us from hardship or even traumas. If we think Psalm 121 talks about physical safety and protection, then we have misunderstood this psalm really badly. When we read the passage, we need to learn to ask the right questions. For example, in Psalm 121, why the psalmist would lift up his eyes to the mountains? I mean, why mountains? If you're looking for God, why not the sky? What is there on the mountains? And also, why he had to emphasize that his God does not slumber nor sleep? I mean, does his God suffer from insomnia? Also, why his God is on his right hand? I mean, if you are talking about protection, why not around him or above him, but right hand? And out of so many threats in life, why mention the sun and the moon? How threatening are these planets? And lastly, the Lord will keep you from all harm. He will watch over you for your life. So does it mean that when you are harmed in any way, even just a paper cut, and that God is not doing his job? I mean, are you following me? If you ignore these questions, then we are not really getting what the psalmist or even God was trying to share with us. So let's read it again. Read this passage again today together. And, and, and let's try not to read it with our own self-interest in there. So let's delete all our existing presupposition of the psalm 
And then let's travel back in time and enter the world of the psalm in an ancient Near Eastern setting. If you look at the structure of the psalm, it's very simple. And it's very clearly laid out. There are eight verses, two verses per stanza. So four stanzas in total. And the psalmist was using all these stanzas to tell us one of the threats that he constantly faces in life. And this threat is evilness. First, in stanza one, he said, or he asked a question. I lift up my eyes to the, to the mountains. Where does my help come from? Well, in the first place, the psalmist made a confession that he needed help. With the threat he is facing, he admitted that he is helpless and hopeless from within. He needed help. But the word help is very general. It's just a general term. And we cannot find the details from first stanza. We don't know what kind of help he's looking for. But nevertheless, the kind of help he's seeking becomes obvious when we read stanzas 2 to 4. In the next three stanzas, the phrase watch over or keep, which is the same word in, in Hebrew, appears six times in all six verses. He needed to be watched over. He's not his own keeper. He's seeking help from outside. So he's seeking help. He said, I lift up my eyes to the mountains. Well, if it's Vancouver, then we might think that he is an avid skier. That's the only thing we can, we can really see on the mountain. As he is seeking help, he lifts up his eyes on the mountain. But this doesn't mean that his help comes from the mountain. It does not mean that. The sentence structure here is a bit confusing. But when he lifted up his eyes to the mountain, he did not make a statement. But he asked the question, where does my help come from? In fact, the psalmist had no intention saying that his help comes from the mountain. He has no intention saying that. He was, in fact, challenging the mountains with his question. He is basically saying, as I am seeking help, do you think I can find help from the mountains? And then he said, no, my help comes from the Lord, the maker of heaven and earth. So now you might think, why challenge the mountains? Why use mountains to compare to God? What is there on the mountains? Well, for ancient Israelites, when mountains were mentioned, what would they think of naturally? Well, the answer is simple. They would think of idols especially Canaanite gods or their idols. Psalm 121 is a song of ascent. It's a pilgrimage song. So naturally, it's about religious life. And it's an anti-idol song. A lot of vocabularies in this psalm are actually related to worship of Baal, the chief god in Canaan. Psalm 121 is on one hand proclaiming the sovereignty of Yahweh and on the other hand denouncing 
the status of idols. The word mountains is plural, so it means mountain range, not just one single mountain. And in ancient Canaanite, uh, Canaan, mountains were the abode, the, the, the meeting places of the gods. It's their boardroom. Mountains were where you seek the gods. When they worshipped their gods, they either went to the, to the temples or they looked up to the mountains. You may ask, how can we be sure that mountains here refer to the sanctuary of the idols? Well, we, we can look at the verbs here. Lift up my eyes. Lift up my eyes does not just mean to look at. It actually means worship. We don't need to go too far. We can just go two psalms forward. In Psalm 123, the first verse would clarify this issue. It says, it's also a song of ascent, I lift up my eyes to you, to you who sit enthroned in heaven. Do you see it? Lift up my eyes is a word for worship. It denotes all in submission. So back to 121. I lift up my eyes to the mountains. It does not mean just looking at the mountains. It, it's not just looking at the scenery. It means worshipping idols. So remember, remember the psalmist asked a question, right? He's asking, does my help come from the idol? No. He proclaimed, my help comes from the Lord, the maker of heaven and earth. God is the maker of heaven and earth, which means that God is not on the mountain. God is beyond that. God is transcendent. God is not like idols who need a mountain for their shelter. So the psalmist is telling us that we always face the choice of allegiance and submission. Mountains are popular, well, in his, at least in his culture, in his time. Mountains are popular choices as a source of help. And mountains are visible. Mountains seem to be a lot more accessible than the invisible, transcender, transcendent maker of heaven and earth. Samus was traveling. So he was likely surrounded by mountains, whenever he looked, he saw mountains. And the psalmist urged us not to set sight on what's visible and what seems to be accessible as our ultimate source of help. They are not. Look beyond them. Lift your eyes higher. Don't settle on the mountains. Look beyond them. Look higher to the sky. Set sight by faith on the maker of heaven and earth. Other than God, there's no need and no reason to submit ourselves to any other power. We need to put faith and allegiance in God alone. And this is the first stanza. After he proclaimed the source of his help is from God, the psalmist now con continued to describe how God helped him. So stanza 2 he says, He will not let your foot slip. He who watches over you will not slumber. Indeed, he who watches over Israel will never slumber nor sleep. The most interesting description here 
was that the psalmist twice emphasized that his God will not slumber nor sleep. It's like 24-7 security alarm system. But why? Why he chose this description? To understand why the psalmist so emphasized on the non-sleeping nature of God, we need first to understand what kind of threat the psalmist was facing in this stanza. First, he said that God will not let his foot slip. You know, this verse really made me feel myself so faithless earlier when I bought these like spiky non-slip straps you know, for the, for the shoes on the, on the icy, red, icy weather a couple of months ago. I had bought this on, on Amazon and then I never used it. Like, I feel so faithless, right? I mean, God can protect me and not, not let my foot slip. But proper Bible study helped relieve my guilt. The term slipping in Psalms always means something else. Something worse. It means death. Psalm 66 gives us a better interpretation of the word slipping. In verse 9 it says, He has preserved our lives and kept our feet from slipping. You see, this is a parallel sentence. The first half parallels with the second half. So the first explains the second, or vice versa. Preserve life equals keep your feet from slipping. So if he slips, it means that he is dead. Or more precise, it means falling into the shoal. This is, this is a Hebrew word for the underworld, in which one will be separated from God. To further prove that this, this rather mystical meaning of the word slip, I need to go into a bit of word study here. The original Hebrew for the word slip is mot, M-O-T, mot. To us, mot doesn't mean much. But to Israelites, it means, well, it has some very special and unique meaning. The word mot, which means slip in the verb form, is actually the name of the god of the underworld in Canaan. It's the god of death. So when God will not let your foot slip, it means that we will not be taken captivity by mot or into the underworld and be separated from God. God is able to help us in such that we will not be taken captivity by moth because Yahweh is a God who doesn't slumber nor sleep. Sometimes I found this feature of God rather funny. Like, like when, when someone asks you about your God, like they, they might ask you, hey, I wonder how powerful your God is. And then you go, sure, I can tell you. My God is almighty, powerful, beyond comprehension. And you know, he doesn't take naps. I mean, that's quite anticlimactic, right? There are many other things you can say about God's power, but he doesn't nap. But there are gods who would go to sleep. One of those gods, sleepy gods, is no other but Baal the chief god of Canaan. Remember in the, in the book of First Kings, I actually preached on this in, in your summer conference last year. The book of First um, Kings, prophet Elijah 
was squaring off with a hundred of prophets of Baal on Mount Carmel. They were praying. They, they would pray to their respective gods. And, and whichever god sent fire to burn the offerings, that god would be the true god. So after a few hours of prayer by, by the Baal's uh, prophets, nothing happened. So Elijah kind of teased them and saying, Shout louder, he said. Surely he is a god. Maybe he is just sleeping and must be awakened. We need to know that Elijah did not make up things here. What he said was a very long Canaanite tradition. In such a tradition, Baal is the god of fertility and rain. So during the dry season in, in spring and summer, with no, or little or no rain, it's believed that Baal is absent. So where did he go? Well, he, he was in fact taken captivity by another god during this dry season. And this other god was no other than Mot, the death god. So, so every year, Baal was to die during spring and, 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 and captured by Mot. And in fall and winter, the rain season comes, he is believed to be saved by his ally and resurrected. This is known as the famous Baal cycle. I mean, you can Wikipedia it. It happens every year. It's very boring and predictable. But during the dry season, the Canaanite people would not dare to say that Baal was dead. So they would say that he was sleeping. So every year, Baal has to sleep for six months because he was taken captivity by moth. You see, all these key Canaanite mystical words, moth, sleep, are found in this stanza of Psalm 121. So in this stanza, the psalmist was really saying that God, Yahweh, is not like Baal. Because Yahweh doesn't sleep. Or more precisely, He doesn't die. He overcomes death. And death will, will never overcome Him. That's why God, who doesn't die, can save us from slipping or from moth. God can save His people from getting separated from Him. I mean, yes, we would be tempted. We would sin. We would be discouraged. But we can take heart because this stanza is the Old Testament equivalent to Romans 8 where it says, For I am convinced that neither death nor life, nor angels nor demons, neither the present nor the future, nor any powers, neither height nor depth, nor anything else in all creation will be able to separate us from the love of God that is in Christ Jesus our Lord. This is the essence of stanza 2. Now moving to stanza 3. It says, The Lord watches over you. The Lord is your shade at your right hand. The sun will not harm you by day, nor the moon by night. I hope by now you would be able to look for the right answer by asking the right question. So it says, God is your shade at your right hand. And the correct Translation should say that God is your shield on your right side. If it is a shade 
to cover the sun, then it it should be above you, your, on your head, right? It, it it's not on your right hand. A shield on your right side has a very unique military implication. In ancient time, most warriors they carry sword on their right hand. Okay, on the right hand, and the shield on the left hand. Okay. Most people are right-handed. So when you carry your sword with your right hand and your shield on your left hand, which side of you is more vulnerable? Obviously, your right, especially right rear quadrant, would be the most vulnerable, right? I mean, don't get fascinated by those Matt Damon movies that you can you know, wield off the arrows with your, with your sword. You know, that's impossible in real life. So, so in Jackson. <laughs> so in ancient time, those elite warriors, okay, those those, those really high-class elite warriors, they were provided with a psychic who would carry a, a shield on his rear right to cover his blind spot against being sniped by enemies. God in this stanza is described as our protection, particularly over our blind spots. Spiritual battles, attacks, it, it can come in, in forms of temptation, but it comes from many angles. Apostle Peter, for example, in advising Jesus not to go and get himself killed, had been hit by Satan at his blind spot. I mean, he's just telling his master not to go die. What's seemingly a very reasonable advice to Jesus, and for Jesus' well-being, was a spiritual trap indeed. And back to this psalm, it says that the attacks are like sun and the moon. I don't know about you, but to me, the most the sun can harm me, I mean, maybe sunburn, but I never got moonburn. So how evil are sun and moon? So in fact, sun and moon are used metaphorically. The the psalmist is saying that spiritual attacks are like sun and moon, meaning that no one can... How can you hide from the sun and the moon? Well, you may say you can go under the basement, right? But don't do that. I mean, don't argue about rationality with parables. I mean, don't kill the romance of a metaphor, okay? So in this stanza free, the psalmist proclaims that Yahweh protects us over our blind spots. It doesn't mean that we don't try to try our best to cover our angles. I mean, it's like the warriors. They still, I mean, protect themselves. But there are blind spots that they need help from. But at the end, just like no one can hide from the sun or the moon completely, we are all vulnerable in some sense. We all need to rely on God as our protection and team up with Him in the spiritual battle against evilness. So now we go to the last stanza. Stanza 4, the psalmist says, The Lord will keep you from all harm. He will watch over your life. The Lord will watch over you, your coming and going, both now and forevermore. Now, the real threat implied 
in this psalm finally becomes explicit. The Lord will keep you from all harm. The word harm in Hebrew should be translated as evil. This same word appears the first time in Genesis when the name of the forbidden tree was mentioned. It's the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. Yes, that's the word. The same word there, evil, is the same word here for harm. So now we know that this verse here, the, the Lord will keep you from all harm, does not mean physical harm or bad circumstance. This verse is not a promise of a smooth and safe life path. This verse, the Lord will keep you from all evil, is the Old Testament equivalent of the last petition in the Lord's Prayer. Lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from the evil one. This is not a promise to claim for safe and easy life, but a promise to claim for holy and consecrated life. If you pray this promise, God said, the Lord will watch over your coming and going both now and forevermore. Your coming and going. It's not about your daily commute. It represents an entire day in the ancient Near East uh, village life. Your coming and going, that's one day. And later on, this saying also refers to one's lifetime. Your coming to life and then you're going. That's one's life. It means that as evil attacks are likely trying to slip us as long as we shall live, God's watching over us will also last a lifetime and beyond because it's now and forevermore. Brothers and sisters, this is a very realistic psalm in which it doesn't shy away from the many invisible evil attacks or temptations that we might encounter in our life. But on the other hand, this psalm is as encouraging as it can be because in the midst of all these attacks, God, the maker of heaven and earth, is our hell. And he does not sleep, meaning that he would never be overcome by the power of death. And even those spiritual attacks are as inevitable and unavoidable as the sun or the moon, God will cover our blind spots as we pray the promise, lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from the evil one. So, as Pastor Jerry Sitter reads this psalm again, he must realize that God does keep his promise. It's because even though Pastor Jerry went through such an unimaginable trauma, evilness still cannot overcome him. Even though so much temptation to tempt him to leave God, his faith was protected as he is still serving God diligently. So I pray that God's word, together with the testimony of Pastor Jerry Sitter, would encourage us today to keep our faith in God. No matter how little our faith is, that God could see us through the worst possible moment of our lives. That we can remain loyal to Him regardless 
of our situation and our circumstance. So now I'd like to invite the worship team to come back up and uh, lead us this response song, God is Able. <laughs> 